1: Today is Monday, February 5th, 2007. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Welcome to the program. Today we have an exciting opportunity to speak with Dr. Peter Pronovost, MD, PhD, FCCM from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He was the lead author on an exciting article recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled, An Intervention to Decrease Catheter-Related Bloodstream Infections in the Intensive Care Unit. The specific reference is the New England Journal of Medicine, volume 355, number 26, 2006, uh, page 2725. Dr. Pronovost is well known to many of us, having recently given a keynote uh, speech at a recent Society of Critical Care Medicine annual congress. But for the record, he is the medical director of the Center for Innovation in Quality Patient Care, and a full professor in the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Pronovos' special interest is applying clinical research methods that improve the quality of health care and safety, specifically for the critically ill and injured patient. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us today on the podcast.
2: Yes, thank you for having me. It's truly a delight.
1: Um, I was thought before we got into the paper itself, I wanted to hear a little bit about your career trajectory and at what point sort of you decided to get into critical care, how you decided to do it through anesthesia rather than pulmonary critical care or or surgery, and uh, how you made a determination to do a PhD and, and all of that. I, I would love to hear about that if I could.
2: Sure. Well, thank you. I uh, actually started uh, my residency in emergency medicine and during that training, spent some time in the intensive care unit and uh, really became quite enamored with it and decided that's where I wanted to focus my clinical attention. Uh, and uh, I looked around for a different approaches to training and decided to do anesthesia um, as the training vehicle for that. So I went and did anesthesia and then did a critical care fellowship, and as part of that fellowship, Hopkins had a program to train people in how to do clinical research, and I enrolled in that program. Now, the program was primarily designed to train people to do randomized clinical trials, and I quickly realized that I wanted to do outcomes or health services research and kind of designed my own track where I did both the hardcore epidemiology and biostatistics as well as a degree in health policy and management We've now created a formal tract in the clinical investigation programs for people like myself, and it's perhaps the largest growing component of this program. There's an awful lot of people who uh, are interested in doing scholarly work on outcomes and patient safety.
1: And is that um, related to the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program also? Because I know Hopkins has that as well.
2: We sure do. It is not. It's part of what's called the Graduate Training Program in Clinical Investigation, and um, uh, And it's under those rubrics. Although, you know, we're just formal or starting a program with the World Health Organization to create patient safety scholars, where people from around the world will come to Hopkins, get a master's degree in public health, spend a year doing research with us, and then go back to their own uh, country. And that's a really exciting development, really recognizing that to produce scholarly work and outcomes. Just like in basic or clinical research, it often requires formal training and some mentoring.
1: And do you want to spend a couple of minutes, uh, perhaps for residents or fellows that are doing this kind of thing now, how did you end up uh, making your decision about uh, going into patient safety and, and all of that?
2: Sure. I well, was interested in patient safety uh, for a number of reasons. One is my father died uh, prematurely and, and died in horrible pain um and I really became convinced that patients deserved better. And as I went on my clinical career, I came to understand this idea of systems, that is how we organize and deliver care is going to have a far bigger impact on patient outcomes than my individual skills as a single clinician, that I can only treat so many patients. But if I change the system, I could have a much broader impact. And for the Residents out there, you know, I um, actually gave a talk to the program I graduated from the 10-year anniversary and said, what does it take to produce successful um, clinical researchers or patient safety researchers? And I think the formula is relatively simple. Though producing researchers is really a complex adaptive system, that is, it's complicated and interactions are often nonlinear, there's really three things that it comes down to. And I think it's one Get formal training in clinical research methods, either a master's of public health and MSc or a doctoral degree. Two is connect with a mentor who works as an inter with an interdisciplinary team. That is m- mentoring, especially in patient safety, because it draws on so many disciplines, uh, is really key. And the three is um, conduct a structured r- research experience, but importantly, make sure you have time to do that. So get some committed time out of your schedule to work on these research projects. And with those three aims, formal training, mentoring, and dedicated uh, research time, uh, you will have an extremely high probability of uh, growing into a successful researcher in this field.
1: Well, that dovetails nicely into the next part of the podcast where I know one of um, your areas of interest and, and your group down at Johns Hopkins has been decreasing the incidence of catheter-related bloodstream infections infections as part of a culture of safety in the intensive care unit. And I thought maybe if you wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, I know that uh, you published with Dr. baronholtz and others in Critical Care Medicine, your approach to decreasing central line infection and perhaps how that led to this article that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine.
2: Sure. Thank you. Our approach to patient safety uh, is really to have uh, the Johns Hopkins Hospital be our learning lab. That is, we seek to devise, implement, and evaluate interventions that improve patient safety uh, here at our hospital. And then uh, when or if they work, we package them in a way that could be applied bro- broadly and really shared with, with the, the larger community. And we uh, package such a program to reduce catheter-related blister infections here, um, and that was published, as you had mentioned, in Critical Care Medicine. The novel approaches for that were to combine what I would call the science or technical side, is that is, what does the evidence say and how do you measure these, with the culture or the adaptive side. That is, how do you get people engaged that this is important work? And how do we get people, particularly physicians, to change their practices? And a number of important lessons came out of this work. One was the need to partner quite closely with your hospital epidemiology and infection control, uh, that they have resources to help educate staff to monitor these infections in a um, scientifically sound way. and either group alone isn't likely to be successful. Another important lesson was this culture change, and there's a couple there. The first is to clearly recognize that these infections are important and should be a focus of our improvement efforts. When we um, started this, we uh, had many physicians, I suspect like many at your organizations, who would say, hey, you know, we're at the 50th percentile of the CDC's benchmark, what at the time was called the NNIS, uh, we have sick patients. That's as low as we're going to go. And we said to them, you know, I don't know how many of these infections are preventable versus inevitable, but I do know that there's five evidence-based interventions that are pretty strong and pretty simple to use, and we're using them at about 30% of the time. So why don't we work to create a system where we use these interventions all the time, and let's just see how low the infections can go. And if they come down dramatically, we're ecstatic to see that. And if they don't, well, you're right. It's all your patient severity and most are inevitable, and we'll have to look for other interventions. And what we found in Michigan and at Hopkins is that nearly all of these, not all but the vast majority, are indeed preventable with some simple measures.
1: Um, for the For the podcast, before I get any other questions, do you want to just uh, state your five recommended interventions to decrease sure. those?
2: One of the other key lessons that we learned was the need to simplify the evidence and particularly practice guidelines and convert them to a handful of specific behaviors. And what I mean by that is if you look at the CDC's guidelines or most guidelines, they're anywhere from a hundred to two hundred page long documents that are exceedingly rigorous in summarizing the evidence and and well-needed, but they're just not in a format that are practical for your busy clinicians. And what we've done in our first study at Hopkins is we went through the evidence to select out the interventions in those guidelines that are most strongly supported by the evidence, that is they have the lowest number needed to treat and have the lowest barrier to use and we converted them to behaviors. So to prevent central line infections, we came up with five relatively simple things. Wash your hands, clean your skin with chlorhexidine, use full barrier precautions, avoid the femoral site, and remove unnecessary lines. And the use of those things was associated uh, throughout the state with a fairly dramatic reduction in the rates of these infections.
1: Um, The next question I have for you is is this. uh, Explain to the listeners, how do you go from a a project that is already bold, as I'm going to decrease catheter-related infections, not just in one ICU, but at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, you know, one hospital. Tell me about the infrastructure to get that to the entire state of Michigan. If you could spend a couple of minutes on that, that would be great. I
2: sure could. It was a really exciting project for us. The the Michigan Hospital Association had created a Keystone Center that was focusing on patient safety and quality of care, and they wanted to do something uh, in the ICU, and their members in the state wanted to do something in the ICU, and some of them have heard of our, our work. And so Chris Goschel, who was the executive director of the Keystone Center at the time, called me and said, you know, would you be interested in partnering to put together a safety program throughout the state? I, uh prior to that, I hadn't really thought of it, putting our stuff in on such a large scale, but I said, you know, this is exciting. I think we could really make these interventions scalable. Um, there's going to need to be some resources for that. And uh, we applied for a grant from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality to fund our time, and we're fortunate enough to receive it, and that provided our infrastructure. And the way it works is that the, the team from Johns Hopkins, package the science piece. That is, we developed a program that sought to provide um, a toolkit, if you will, to measure and improve culture, to summarize the evidence for infections, to give strategies on how to measure these infections. And the Michigan Hospital Association uh, through their Keystone Center would coordinate all the operations of this. So they connected and were the primary communicators with the hospitals in the state to bring teams together to uh, hold two m- meetings a year where we would share what's working and what's not. We had biweekly conference calls where we trained teams on either the evidence or how to collect data, or they shared with each other about what their successes and failures were, and it was a really true learning community um, where we packaged the intervention of the program and partnered with our colleagues quite closely um, through the Michigan Hospital Association to broadly put this in a state. And, and, and one of the beauties of that is that there's quite reasonable evidence that a social infrastructure, a social support system is important for improving quality of care. And one of the mantras that we came back over and over again in this program was this word ohana, which... I don't know if any of you have children. Ohana is a Hawaiian word from the Disney movie Lilo and Stitch. Um, That means family, and family means nobody gets left behind. And what we committed to say is that success would only be visible if the entire citizens of Michigan had lower rates of infections, that it wasn't good enough to pick or cherry-pick one hospital that had great results and hold them up there as a slide or one or two key stars while everyone else didn't uh, improve, that we had a commitment that the citizens of Michigan ought to have safer ICU care, and success was only going to be possible if all the ICUs participating improved, and so that there was this strong commitment to help each other, to work with each other, to share best practices uh, to achieve that goal.
1: One of the questions that we actually brought up in a previous podcast when I was speaking with Dr. Michael Gropper, the director of critical care at UCSF, was specifically relating to this kind of work, whether or not... Uh, measurement of outcome versus measurement of process, and there are merits to both, and obviously this paper focused primarily on measurement of outcome, but as an individual intensivist, what I have the most control over is the the process, so I can make sure that the head of the bed is elevated, I can make sure that uh, I'm getting DVT and GI prophylaxis right, and document that I'm doing that. But the outcome can often be very challenging, and I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I'm sure you must have an opinion on this.
2: I have Uh, a very strong opinion on that, and it's a hugely important uh, topic. And let me just say that um, I think patients, employers, and clinicians uh, would all prefer to measure outcomes if possible because they're they're much more meaningful. The problem is they're also often more resource-intensive and often just not scientifically sound to do. And so the error in measuring outcomes is often far greater than the improvements in safety that you may hope to see, and they could very often mislead. And process measures, that is, are you using evidence-based interventions, are often uh, much more practical and much more meaningful to to clinicians, though perhaps less meaningful uh, to patients. When we design a safety program, uh, we... Uh, have a strong commitment to scientific integrity and to m- measurement. And we sit around and say, which, whether outcomes are processed, do we have the ability to measure? And the approach we take to quality improvement is to reduce the quantity but not the quality of data. In other words, whether I'm doing a randomized trial or a quality improvement study, if I'm trying to reduce bloodstream infections, I need a valid measure of bloodstream infections. And I may not collect data on uh, severity of illness or Apache scores or the type of an organism causing infections, but nonetheless, I, I need a valid measure of infections. In this case, and quite frankly, bloodstream infections are one of the few outcomes that we could measure in a valid way. And what I mean by that is that they're one of the few outcomes for which we have standardized definitions of a numerator, that is who has an event, and a denominator, that is who's at risk for the event, and an independent surveillance system. There's quite frankly, very few, if any, other outcomes that we have an ability to measure in a scientifically sound way. Take for example, uh, use of deep venous thrombosis from discharge data, which is now one of the patient safety indicators. Because we lack standardized surveillance for these things, the degree to which we look for them will strongly influence how many we find. Indeed, our trauma surgeons showed that when they implemented a standardized process for screening for DVTs, our rates went up tenfold, apparently looking like we were providing now poor quality of care, when in reality we were just screening and picking up um, many more. And so unless society commits resources to measure in a scientifically sound way, I think outcomes are going to be limited.
1: Well, so let me just let me just restate that to make sure I'm following what you're saying because obviously this is very very important. So uh, it's it's easier and cleaner to just pick my last hundred charts and document and see whether or not there was documentation of the head of the bed and and um, DVT GI prophylaxis. You can get that from a pharmacy system, but it is much more. But it's a surrogate, right? It's a surrogate for the presumed improvement in outcome. Is that is that a reasonable right, so, statement?
2: exactly right. So processes, if they're strongly related to um, outcomes, we could take comfort in measuring those. Now, I would challenge you, though, in your statement about I can just review charts and see if the head of the Fed elevated. Right, right. The measuring right. process is both a science and, in some sense, an art because what we always struggle is to find this balance between what is scientifically sound and what is feasible in the real world. And by real world, mean, meaning most hospitals don't have additional resources or external funding to collect data. So we have to try to balance between what's doable. In our case, the only real way you can measure use of processes in a scientifically sound way for central lines is if you fund an independent observer to go sit and watch in the ICU how people put in lines. Right. But because they're not put in in a uh, scheduled way, as you know, lines go in all the time, that person would have to sit there for an awful lot of time not knowing if they're going to observe something. It would be a very inefficient um, and we didn't feel comfortable having physicians self-report that I did these because that's kind of the canary, you know, in the henhouse. I mean, of course they're going to say I did this, and it it wouldn't be meaningful. And so we, in this case, opted to measure outcomes because the processes weren't fe- weren't feasible. For ventilator associated pneumonia, the outcome is really noisy, as you know. There's an area of great controversy of uh, how to me- measure these, but the processes could be measured, but some of the challenges that we're still wrestling with as a field is how do you measure a process that needs to be done all the time to receive a benefit? So for example, you're elevating the head of the bed or providing deep venous thrombosis prophylaxis. Is it okay just to say that they have an order for that or do they have to measure that patient actually gets it? And if they get it, do I have to see that they get it every minute, every hour, once a day, twice a day?
1: So the granularity can be incredibly detailed in terms Correct.
2: of... And as you would imagine, resources go up dramatically to get more detail, but it's likely more valid. Right. And what we try to find is what I call the sweet spot between what's scientifically sound and what is, what is feasible. So, for instance, we found measuring head-of-the-bed elevation twice a day Gives you a really good surrogate of what's going on. You know, could we measure it every minute or every hour? Sure, but it's just not practical. This area is coming up a ton with the evidence supporting tight glucose control. And how do you measure patients' glu- glucose?s Because we measure them at varying time points, and we have a lot of data. Um, you know, do you just look at their morning glucose? Um, and part of what our preliminary efforts, as I said, Johns Hopkins is the learning lab. Is to make wiser decisions for these things. So, for example, if we can show that your morning glucose correlates, your score in your morning glucose correlates with your glucose score if you measured it four or five times a day, then we can take comfort in measuring it only once a day. Our point is these inferences ought to be empirically driven. That is, we—if you're going to embark on large-scale products, we really—if you're going to embark on large-scale programs, we really ought to be sure that what we're measuring correlates. With things that are important, and perhaps the best example of that is the recent evidence um, of the failure to find an association with some of the measures for um, pneumonia. I mean, for acute MIs and heart failure and outcomes. And you look at those and you say, is it surprising? Well, while beta blockers are strongly associated with outcomes and use of them was the measure for education on smoking cessation wasn't, uh, but it's measured by Reading a chart to see if a nurse gave the patient a, a um, information uh, pamphlet, you know, and that certainly doesn't give me comfort that one the patient was educated um, or that the use of that is going to be associated with improved mortality. And so I think the the, the science of quality and safety measurement uh, would be well served adhering to some pretty basic principles of clinical research.
1: Uh, so, Doctor Pronovost, one of the uh, issues that I wanted to ask you about is uh, in doing these podcasts, there's clearly uh, to try and improve the patient safety for patients, one of the industries that's looked at is the airline industry where, you know, you've you've just got to get it right. And yet I've spoken with other physicians who say, well, the analogy may not be completely apt because the level of complexity is so much higher for the critically ill patient, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The Healthcare is much more complex than uh aviation, and importantly, we have people who are going to die. I mean, despite our best efforts, despite no mistakes happening, um, some people are going to have bad outcomes. And so teasing out what's preventable for versus inevitable is exceedingly different, uh, difficult and something the airline doesn't have to, to, to deal with. Um, I think it's also important to differentiate whether we're talking about a process or an outcome for the aviation. Though we hold aviation up as the benchmark, as you probably know um, and how they're at six Sigma for plane crashes, their 30% of flights are often delayed um, somewhere around 5% of the piece of luggage are missing uh, nowadays. And so their processes um, are performing exceedingly less well. Now with that, A number of lessons, though, I think we can learn from aviation, primarily one is this ability to have a mechanism to identify and mitigate hazards, and through their well-developed incident reporting system and system for improving mistakes. I think the second is the need to standardize and create independent checks for key processes. Healthcare has resisted standardization, and I think we learn from aviation and many other safe industries that those concepts applied in our own context. I think... Wholesale taking, you know, aviation concepts um, to healthcare is a mistake. It will fail because we have our own culture, our own language, our own context that we have to be respectful of. Uh, and we've come a long way. We've done many things well in healthcare that we have to honor that rich history uh, and really adapt it rather than transform it.
1: One of the other questions. So, so to restate that, your point is there are some important. Um, uh, techniques and principles learn. that we can glean from that industry exactly right okay um, the other question uh, i wanted to ask you before we conclude is that many hospitals including our own are grappling with the safety issues not just of catheter related bloodstream infections but some of the mechanical complications and that even since i've been a resident because of the uh, widespread use of sono guidance the internal jugular uh, approach can has become uh, much safer and I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on balancing some of those issues
2: Yes, you know, that's a great point because what we have to do in clinicians is balance net risks and benefits, and we make those decisions all the time for our patients. And many of these programs focus on only infectious risk, but as you know, there's also mechanical complications that kind of come apart. And what do we know? Well, we know that femoral lines have the highest rate of both mechanical and infectious complications, and so they should be avoided as we argued we know that, or we believe that there may be some slight lower infection risk from some clavian over IJs, although um, that evidence isn't super great, but we also know that their complication rates appear to be higher, and most importantly, that many clinicians' skills are not very comfortable with that. So, for example, in my anesthesia training program, we do very, very few subclavians, but an awful lot of IJs, and, and I think the skill of the clinician has to be taken into account. So in our Michigan program, we made no statement, um, nor would we have, about whether people should do IJs versus subclavians, that they have to base that on their own clinical experience and um, the net complication rate, that is the net risks and benefits. And so if you're not skilled with a subclavian uh, and the complications of IJ could be dramatically reduced with an ultrasound guidance, as you had stated, then IJs ought to go um, the way that that you do things. There is good data, um, and we've had many morbid complications from clinicians inadvertently putting cortices into carotids. Hopefully, that complication could be eliminated uh, by either transducing a CVP line before you put a larger catheter in or using an ultrasound guide.
1: Well, to conclude today, you know, clearly, as as you stated, and, and please correct me if I got it wrong, but you were able to deuce, reduce the incidence of catheter-related bloodstream infections by around 66% at 16 to 18 months after implementation of your uh, educational initiative statewide in Michigan. And uh, I thought I'd let you conclude by talking about some of your future projects, perhaps working with other states, and uh, the your relationship, perhaps, with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement.
2: Sure, that's great. So we um, and indeed uh, found that the vast majority of these infections are preventable with a structured program, but these programs, to do them with scientific integrity, are really labor intensive frankly more resource intensive I think than any single institution could put together and so when they 're packaged, they ought to be shared and developed broadly and they do require this um, measurement infrastructure. We are putting the same intervention now. Uh, in the state of Rhode Island, partnering with the Rhode Island Quality Institute and their hospital association, and that's just really exciting. Uh, we've put it in New Jersey, working with the New Jersey Hospital Association, and we're um, in discussions with several large health systems and other states to put this in, in broadly. The the state or a large system seems to be a good node because they have the infrastructure to work with the member or healthcare organizations and broadly put it in. Um, we're also uh, ex- very excitedly working with the World Health Organization uh, to put this program in several whole countries to see if that we could now go from a single institution to a state to perhaps a whole country who could eliminate these infections. We've also taken this model now of this kind of rigorous approach to <clears throat> engaging, educating people, executing the evidence, and then evaluating if it works and have applied it to several other areas. So we're working on palliative care with this approach, sepsis care, um, MRSA and VRE, and then importantly, other non-ICU areas. So we are developing a perioperative program, and emergency department program, uh, all with the same approach of a package safety program uh, that at the end of the day allows us to answer with scientific scientific integrity um, our patients safer.
1: Well, Peter, I was looking forward to this. Uh, You're a And Always an exciting speaker and quite an innovator, and and talking to you gets me uh, always excited. The sky's the limit. We've really had a tremendous opportunity today to speak with Peter Pronovost, MD, PhD, FCCM. He is a professor of anesthesia critical care medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and we've been discussing his important article recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine on an intervention to decrease catheter-related bloodstream infections in the intensive care unit. Thank you again Peter for joining us today.
2: Sure thing. Thank you for having me.
1: This concludes our podcast for Monday, February 5th, 2007. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care and Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell.
0: Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.